a mother giving birth, a blooming flower, a parasite emerging from its host, a predator gnawing on a bone. These are moments in life that we can experience, sometimes every day. Yet these common occurrences are incredibly rare in the fossil record. Although fossils can illuminate the past like a guiding beacon, they can only tell us so much about our ancient world and its many inhabitants. Yet every now and then, we experience truly incredible fossil sites that defy expectations and reshape our understanding of the past. We can discover long-gone ecosystems, observe behaviors locked in stone, and reconstruct the tree of life. These fossil sites are so revolutionary that they upend and rebuild our perception of worlds long past. They are so remarkable and so rare that these fossil sites have their own special designation, Fossil Lagerstätten. Hello, my name is Andy Connolly and welcome to Fossil Bonanza. This is a podcast that focuses on these amazing fossil sites. Normally, fossils are found mostly incomplete, with just their teeth or other hard body parts preserved. However, the Earth occasionally blesses us with Lagerstätten, which can amass thousands, sometimes millions, of preserved fossils in stunning quality. Birds can be found with their bones perfectly intact and their feathers arranged in a beautiful display. Flowers are captured in full bloom and leaves look as if they had just fallen from its parental tree. Even insects, entombed in amber, have their tiny, delicate hairs untouched. Some of these fossil sites are quite well known, like La Brea Tar Pits in California, Burgess Shale in Canada, or Naraquirt Caves in Australia. Others fly under the public's collective radar, like the Pisco Formation in Peru, or the Wood of Tough Flora in China. Nevertheless, these sites all contribute vast quantities of knowledge about our ancient worlds and fill in the gaps that would otherwise be empty forever. Nevertheless, these sites all contribute vast quantities of knowledge about our ancient worlds and fill in the gaps that would otherwise be empty forever. It's incredibly likely that if you are a fan of fossils or paleontology in general, you have seen the influence of fossil Lagerstätten. They're seen in documentaries, movies, and books of all kinds. Whole parks and World Heritage Sites are designated to protect these fossil sites. They're the reason why we know dinosaurs had feathers and trilobites had antennae. They sparked famous science fiction stories like Jurassic Park and inspired generations of young paleontologists. Scientists would spend their whole career studying just one of these sites, and businesses make a living excavating, cleaning, and selling these fossils. And every time a new fossil site is found, it is like Prometheus giving fire to man. Their importance cannot be unstated. For the longest time, I've always been interested in fossils, ever since I was a kid. And growing up, that interest had turned into full-on passion and enthusiasm, and I've made my career in learning about fossils and teaching about fossils. And these fossil Lagerstätten have played an important role in my life, and I just find them so interesting that I wanted to make a podcast about them. So for Fossil Bonanza, every episode will focus on a different, amazing site. We'll talk about how these fossil sites were formed, what can be found there, and how these animals and plants got there in the first place. For Season 1, 
we will be looking at just five of these amazing sites. Beecher's Trilobite Bed, Posidonia Shale, the Dominican Amber, the J-Hole Biota, and Naracourt Caves. We will look at golden trilobites, giant crinoids, feathered dinosaurs, entombed insects, and ancient marsupial predators. These sites represent the incredible diversity of fossil Lagerstaaten. They all differ whether it's their geographic location, their time period, their ecosystems, or their preservation method. We will understand how these fossil sites were formed, its denizens, and their impact on paleontology. Now this episode will serve as our introduction to Fossil Bonanza, who I am, a brief little history of paleontology, and an overview of Fossil Lagerstaaten. But, with that said, if you want to skip all that and go right to the good stuff, I got some good news for you. I already uploaded episode 2, which focuses on our first fossil site, Beecher's Trilobite Bed. It's a spectacular site, with golden trilobites preserving everything, from their antennae, to their legs, to even their guts. It's great, you don't want to miss out. But for the rest of you who want to stick around some more, let's go to the past. But not to an ancient past, millions of years old, but a recent one. We're rowing up to the shoreline of Italy during the Middle Ages and discussing the mysterious origin of the valuable tongue stones. Let's dive in. In the Middle Ages of Italy, Particular objects known as glossopetrae were highly coveted among elite and royalty. They were triangular-shaped and embedded in layers of rocks found in great quantities on Malta. These glossopetrae, translated as tongue stones, were believed to be the tongue tips of snakes and dragons. The legend goes that St. Paul was shipwrecked on Malta and was bitten by an adder. Understandably peeved, St. Paul cursed the adder and all the island snake tongues into stone. As such, these tongue stones were highly valued for their ability to ward off poisons. Dipping one in a poison drink or laying it on a venomous bite was said to cure the poison. People would wear the tongue stones around their necks as pendants or sewn into their pockets. Sometimes they were powdered and sold as remedies for diseases like fevers and poxes. They were basically a hot commodity. Then, in 1666, the true origin of these tongue stones were deduced. 1666 proved to be a milestone in the history of science, as Newton discovered calculus, optics, and gravity at the age of 23. This very impressive feat overshadowed what some scientists believe was the birth year of paleontology, or the study of ancient life. In October 1666, two fishermen caught a shark off the coast of Italy, and thought to themselves like, hey, this fish is pretty wild, let's show it to the duke. So they brought the shark's head to the court of Florence and showed it to the officials, even though the head was partly rotted and very likely smelled noxious. Despite the hilariously icky nature of the find, the court's physician, Niall Stenson, also known as Nicolastino, decided to examine the curious finding. He meticulously dissected it and noticed the array of teeth that jutted outwards in an almost brutal, chaotic fashion. 
these teeth in fact looked just like the tongue stones that were all the rage in Europe. He reasoned that this similarity meant that the tongue stones and shark teeth were one and the same. But with this came a question. Why are there so many shark teeth and why can you find them in the mountains, the antithesis of oceans? He reasoned that a great flood buried these teeth under layers of mud which hardened over time and then new layers would build on top of them. Eventually, the ocean retreated to expose these teeth to the world. This formed the basis of Steno's law of superposition, that rock layers on the bottom are usually older than the layers on top, and it serves as one of the most important laws in geology. It's understandable that people didn't equate tongue stones with ancient shark teeth. I mean, for one thing, it's not like there's a whole bunch of sharks just walking on land. Obviously, they prefer their oceanic homes. And in general, paleontology, compared to other sciences, is a relatively young science, and at this time hadn't even been fully materialized yet. Biology, physics, chemistry, astronomy, they all had their roots in ancient history, but geology didn't seriously take off until the 1600s, and it wasn't even until the end of the 1700s that the concept of fossils really began to take hold in the scientific community. Now granted, fossils have been repeatedly discovered before by many people over many places over many years, but these fossils were thought to come from modern animals or left behind in the biblical flood. Why did it take so long for people to realize that fossils were left behind by ancient creatures? Well, many European scholars operated under the popular assumption that the earth formed around 4004 BC, as interpreted by the Bible. To our relatively short lives, the earth appears immutable, quiet, and still, with the occasional volcanic explosion or landslide to spice things up, but that's it. But by the 1700s, creeping doubts set in amongst scientists that perhaps the earth was a bit older than that and may have <gasps> existed before us. But economic incentives related to mining reinforced a more rigorous scientific method approach to geology. If you want to get rich, you need to read the rocks. Fossils were also hard to swallow as they basically went against God's plan. The earth was formed complete and perfect by God, so every animal and plant that was formed in the beginning of time still lives today. The idea that any of God's creatures could disappear was very hard to comprehend. Thomas Jefferson, who had a keen interest in the sciences, could not believe that his precious mastodon was extinct and wrote, quote, Such is the balance of nature that no instance can be produced of her having permitted any one race of her animals to become extinct, of her having formed any link in her great work so weak as to be broken. TJ even hoped that Lewis and Clark would find the mastodon and other weird creatures as they journeyed west to the Pacific Ocean. Alas, that wasn't the case, and I can't blame him. This would have been so cool if North America still had mastodons and other ancient behemoths, but alas, they are all extinct. Though we do see their remains still left behind, such as the coarse La Brea tar pits and other amazing fossil sites. But I digress. Extinction, and in general paleontology, was slowly accepted in the late 1700s for two principal reasons. First, paleontology is... Well, it's, it's kind of a weird offspring between biology, which is the study of life, and geology, the study of the earth. It helps if you have your feet in both fields to understand it. Take the mammoth, for instance. If you were to find its fossil in France before the 1700s, 
you might have thought that it was a skeleton of a legendary creature like a giant. If you had some biological background, you could infer it was an elephant that maybe had died during an ancient Roman invasion or was washed ashore from the biblical flood. Yeah, I mean, the tusks are bigger than a modern elephant and the teeth look kind of off, but eh, it's, it's pretty close. It's probably an elephant. And even then, the lack of geology, which is very important in understanding how old our very ancient world is, meant that people had a hard time grasping the significance of these finds. Thankfully, our understanding of geology and biology and other sciences advanced rapidly at this time, which we call the scientific revolution. The knowledge was there, as in the fossils, it just needed a little push. And that push came from the advancement of, of all things, travel technology. Ships sailed faster, food storage got better, and maps became more accurate. The world was being discovered. Animals and plants of all kind were collected and studied from across the seas. Museums were taking off and showcasing the wonders of the world. And whole families of birds, amphibians, and mammals were studied and proclaimed. It was like the scientific equivalent of an info dump. This leads to 1796. If 1666 was the birth of paleontology, then 1796 was when it walked. French naturalist Georges Cuvier presented a paper where he compared bones of an Indian and an African elephant to that of a French mammoth fossil. The mammoth fossil, he realized, was so remarkably different from its contemporaries that it must have been its own species. What's more, it's a species that was very likely extinct, as nothing like it had been found in the world. His description of the species, and others like the mastodon, the Irish elk, the giant ground sloth, megatherium, were what convinced the scientific community that extinction was a very real and existentially alarming idea. From there, paleontology blossomed into a beautiful flower. The 1800s was an amazing time for this field. New fossils were discovered, dinosaurs were named, Darwin's theory of evolution was published, and gradually the young Earth idea gave way to a much older Earth, one that was millions of years old. Our modern age gave paleontology incredible advancements, such as calculating its age through radiometric dating, decoding genetics to understand how traits change and pass to each new generation, how the continents move, and technological access to almost inhospitable fossil-rich lands. Finally, and most importantly, people from across the world have an intense enthusiasm for paleontology, to find, discover, and learn all we can about our ancient world. It is truly wonderful, and I honestly thinking that we are living in the height of paleontology. So, about those shark teeth fossils. Why did people only find the teeth? After all, if the shark itself was found, then the whole tongue stones thing wouldn't have gotten off the ground. Well, sharks are part of a group called chondrichthys, which include manta rays and skates. A common attribute they share is their cartilage skeleton, the same material that our ears and nose are made of. Cartilage, unfortunately, does not preserve well in the fossil record. It can easily decompose before burial, as opposed to the very hard and very durable shark teeth. Sharks also grow multiple teeth throughout their entire life, unlike our twice-and-done chompers. This creates a strange dichotomy 
of lots and lots of shark teeth fossils with an extreme rarity of body fossils. And really, sharks got lucky. At least they have some hard part in their body. There are tons of organisms out there that have no hard parts whatsoever. There are multitudes of animals like worms, octopi, jellyfish, who are entirely soft and lack the concentrated hard minerals in their body. Their flabby muscles, skin, and tissue can be torn apart by scavengers and be rotted away by bacteria or fungi. The chances for some of these animals to be preserved can be extremely thin. And even then, animals with hard parts, like a dinosaur for instance, have absolutely horrible chances to becoming a fossil. I'm talking bad. It's bad enough that scavengers can eat at your body and, and tear it apart, but the forces of nature just can just wear you down, can erode your bones, scatter them across the land like an overeager toddler and its toys. Nature's chaotic handling of organismal leftovers means that if an animal is preserved, you're usually finding about 15% of it, maybe. Many ancient mammals are discovered and identified by just their teeth alone, which is absolutely incredible. And not to get on a big tangent right here, but as a side note, do any of you remember that scene in Jurassic Park where the paleontologists are digging up the velociraptor? It's possibly the most inaccurate thing in the entire movie. For one thing, they're just like very casually, very nonchalantly brushing the dust off the fossil as if it's just like, oh, you know, it's just lightly covering it, no big deal. That's laughable. For one thing, fossils are usually preserved in a hard matrix of rock, so you need things like drills and chisel tools to remove that surrounding material. And it's also incredibly rare to have the whole animal in that amazing condition with 100% of its bones perfectly preserved, all still intact with each other. That is just insane. Even without scavengers, simple bloating and rotting after death can disarticulate the bones and at the very least can make them disheveled into a slightly organized bag of bones. Sorry, I had to get on my soapbox for a moment there. But anyway, plants face a similar issue when they're trying to fossilize. On the one hand, whole tree trunks are preserved and can be very common through their hardy nature and volume. On the other hand, leaves are easily crushed or eaten by herbivores. Flowers bloom briefly in a plant's lifespan, and seeds love to sprout when they're buried. That's what they do. These quote-unquote weaker parts are very decisive in identifying plant families, and yet are only found in the best of best circumstances. I commend paleobotanists, uh, scientists who study ancient plants, because they face extreme hurdles in their field to reconstruct ancient plant life. The, the debate that goes on on who was the earliest flowering plant is insane and can be rather toxic at times. Then you have the issue of some ecosystems that are just not that good at preserving life. Rivers, lakes, and shallow seas are excellent as they can bury organisms rapidly. But life forms that live far away from water sources or fly have a much, much lower chance of being preserved as they just don't commonly expose themselves to these burial conditions. They will likely decompose long before a random flood comes in and buries them. Cacti are a fantastic example of this, as arid environments aren't the best for fossilization, so their fossils are pretty rare. 
Bats are another great example, as they are the second most common type of mammal in the world, falling just short of rats, yet their fossil record is incredibly sparse. And as a side note, there are a few fossil Lagerstaaten out there that have preserved some very nice, very incredible bat fossils, so we may talk about them again in the future. Even if you were buried in a good environment, it's not guaranteed that your bones will even fossilize. If the soil is too acidic, your bones can dissolve away between 20 to 100 years. So it's best to be buried in places that are salty or devoid of oxygen, and unfortunately these conditions are not that common. We'll get into these unusual preservations later, but it's best to give them a brief mention here. Then finally, even if, big if, even if you were buried properly, and you turn to rock, and you sit there patiently for millions of years, who's to say that a paleontologist will find you? After all, you could be buried incredibly far below the surface without anyone suspecting you're there. Without any erosion, you won't be exposed at all. And then again, too much erosion, and you yourself will break down from all the torrential rains and nasty winds. You got to be exposed at just the right time, at the right place to be found. So the trillions upon trillions of animals and plants and so forth that have ever lived are winnowed down to a mere sliver of their original count. There are whole species of organisms that walked, swam, flowered, or spored that will never know they lived. It's frankly tough being a fossil. As you can imagine, the fossil record is incredibly patchy. I've heard many times that figuring it out is like trying to solve a jigsaw puzzle without the box's lid and a, mo and a majority of the pieces are missing. Fortunately, the fossil record blesses us with some choice fossil sites that can fill in those gaps and reconstruct our ancient world. And these fossil sites are the focal point for our podcast. They are undoubtedly the best, most famous fossil sites in the world due to their unusual quality and quantity of fossils preserved in them. Entire ecosystems can be found at these sites, ranging from flowers to ticks, worms to stingrays, and feathers to hair. These sites are so special that paleontologists call them fossil Lagerstaaten. Fossil Lagerstaaten was coined in 1985 by paleontologist Seilacher and his colleagues in their paper titled, quote, Sedimentological, Ecological, and Temporal Patterns of Fossil Lagerstaaten, end quote. The word Lagerstaaten is German and comes from a mining term meaning an exceptionally rich seam of minerals, ores, or precious metals. In other words, a bonanza! <laughs> And so adding the word fossil in front of Lagerstadt means we have a fossil site of unusually high scientific value. There are two types of fossil Lagerstaaten, Konzentrat and Konservat. Konzentrat Lagerstaaten are sites where there is an extremely high quantity of fossils. You can remember this by thinking that Konzentrat is German for the word concentrate. These include places like bone beds and natural animal traps. The quality of these fossils may not be exceptional, but the sheer number of specimens means we can reconstruct ecosystems. 
and we can even understand the life cycle of an animal going from its infant stage all the way to adulthood. A stellar example of this is La Brea Tar Pits, the iconic fossil site in LA. Paleontologists have found millions of fossils, like short-faced bears, mammoths, hawks, woodpeckers, and even plants like raspberries and junipers. The museum even has an absolutely beautiful, breathtaking display of 400 almost perfectly preserved dire wolf skulls. It's absolutely incredible. Meanwhile, Konservatlagerstätten are fossil sites where the preservation quality of the fossils is incredibly high. And again, it's a German word, which translates to the similar-sounding word, conserve. Sometimes, where the animals were buried was devoid of oxygen or really salty, so scavengers or decomposers couldn't access and destroy the body. And as such, the body would lay untouched for millions of years. These untouched fossils can create the true gems of the fossil world. Leaves are left uncrumbled. Hairs and feathers are still connected to the body, and skin deteriorates to a carbon film leaving a perfect outline of the original body. One particularly exciting example comes from Florissant Fossil Beds National Monument in Colorado. Butterflies are found with their legs and antennae. Their open wings strike a beautiful pose, revealing the patterns that still embolden them. Flowers are caught in the moment of bloom, and leaves still retain their individual veins. Outside of the rock layers and adorning the landscape are huge stumps of petrified redwoods, a bygone relic of a world that was much warmer and wetter than it is today. Now, most Lagerstätten aren't strictly set in either two groups. Many times, they will lie somewhere in between. Take, for instance, worms or any other soft-bodied animal. Modern soft-bodied animals can make up to 60% of animals in a marine habitat. That's pretty substantial, and this figure was undoubtedly much higher in Earth's history before the evolution of hard body parts. As such, if you have a Lagerstadt that was very careful in protecting these animals, then this typical conservat will have strong flavors of a concentrat, as you will have a whole bunch of soft-bodied fossils at once. A fantastic example of this is the Queen of Lagerstaten, the Burja Shale in Canada. Hundreds of thousands of fossils are found here, and about 98% of them are soft-bodied. This is absolutely incredible, and the knowledge we gain from it is staggering. As you can imagine, there are not that many Lagerstaten in the entire world. Compared to the amount of fossils and rock formations there are, there are a very, very small amount of Lagerstaten. And some of these Lagerstaten get noticed and others do not. Some of them may become parks if they're especially noteworthy and, and others are just an interesting side attraction. And so the, the amount of information that we can learn from these Lagerstaten varies incredibly. Because you have to take into account their time period, their location, who gets preserved here, how they get preserved. But regardless of that, it, I, want, I want to say there's, there's not one fantastic, best, most pristine, perfect fossil site in the entire world. Nothing is. Nothing can preserve all the animals and all the plants in its ecosystem. 
I want to be bringing it up again and again throughout the season. But even in our fantastic Lagerstaten, we're still seeing what we call taponomic bias against certain animals and plants. An easy example to name right now is amber. Amber is great. It's fantastic to preserve the insects and other small critters. And that's just it, you know, small critters. Larger animals, if they get stuck on there, they just pull their hand off or whatever. They are not going to be entombed by that amber. So even those amber sites are only preserving the smallest of organisms in their environment. So even then, we are still seeing some sort of bias of certain animals and plants game preserving. That is one thing I want to make clear, is that no Lagerstadt is perfect. You're not going to get everything found in that environment there. But regardless, you're still going to get a lot of fantastic information about this ancient world. This is where my love and passion of fossil Lagerstatting come in. Because, like a lot of paleontologists, I developed a love of fossils when I was a kid. I loved dinosaurs. And as I was growing up, that love turned into full-on fascination and appreciation. And fossil Lagerstatting was a big impact on my life. When I was getting my thesis in geology, I studied mosasaurs, which were these giant marine reptiles that lived in Kansas during the Cretaceous period. And Kansas has a whole bunch of mosasaurs, and as such, I was able to get amazing work done thanks to one of our beloved state fossils. And then after I graduated from college, I became a park ranger at a fossil Lagerstatten Park, Fossil Butte National Monument, which is located in Wyoming. And here I got to just fully experience the beauty of these fossil sites. Because Fossil Butte is located in a high desert. It's pretty dry, it has high elevation, but 52 million years ago, it was a very different story. It was warm, it was wet, it was very much like Louisiana, and it had rivers and lakes there with crocodiles and stingrays and giant turtles, little horses and beautiful bats. It is a fantastic dichotomy, and it tells us so much about our ancient world. And so a lot of times I find myself wondering what is locked away in these stones. What are we finding, and what have we missed? I've no longer worked at the Park Service, but I now work as an educator at the Natural History Museum of Utah. There is actually a special exhibit uh, the museum has on display about the Cleveland Lloyd Dinosaur Quarry. It's a very cool often very overlooked fossil site that has dinosaurs from the Jurassic period. And it has all the iconic dinosaurs from that time period here, like Allosaurus, Camarasaurus, and so forth. And all these bones are just jumbled up together. And it just, it's just in a weird, it's just a weird environment because we are still figuring out how these animals got here. And that is one of the coolest things about these sites is that we are still learning so much about them. The information hasn't stopped coming. I'm going to be saying this again and again throughout the, 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 the five fossil sites that I'll be talking about. But a lot of them are still garnering new cool facts about their site. A great example is the Dominican Amber, which is going to be one of our fossil sites. Just last year, 
we found one of the few, if not only, fossilized evidence of hatching insects. And I'm not talking about eggs or larvae. I'm talking about the larvae themselves coming out of the eggs. And as they were doing so, they get preserved in amber. And that is incredible to think that you can observe that kind of behavior locked away in the amber stone. And so that is the, that is the funny part of me doing this podcast is that when I release these episodes, they're going to be outdated and they're, they're not going to be like totally outdated, but they're definitely going to be missing the crucial pieces. Who knows what new animals and plants are out there still that we have yet to be found, that we have yet to add to the ecosystem. It is very cool, very poetic, and I just love it a lot. So now that I'm done with my uh, soapbox moment, I wanted to say thank you very much for listening to this first episode of Fossil Bonanza. I hope I convinced you to listen to my podcast. I spent about 10 months or so working on these eight episodes, and I'm really proud of the end result of it. And like I said earlier, I've already uploaded the next episode focused on our first fossil logger shot, Beecher's Trilobite Bed. So if you're convinced, if you want to learn more, download that next episode. Give it a listen. I think you guys will have a great time listening to it and learning about all these cool, amazing fossil sites out there. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about these sites, I got my own website, fossilbonanza.com. I like to post articles and updates about the podcast and all the cool new research that's coming out about these sites. And I'll also be providing a rough transcript of this episode as well. So if you know anyone that uh, may not benefit from a recording of this episode, but would do better for written word instead, then show them to my website. I would definitely appreciate. And of course, if you want to learn more, subscribe, listen to me, all that jazz. You know how to do that stuff. And finally, just leave a comment. Tell me who you are. And if you have a fossil in your collection, let me know. Or better yet, if you had visited one of these amazing fossil sites in the world. Anyway, I'll stop yammering. Go ahead, listen to episode two. I'll be releasing these episodes from here on out every two weeks or so. And I hope you enjoy Fossil Bonanza. Thanks for listening.